In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Esther chapter 5. Queen Esther invites King Ahasuerus and Haman to a luxurious banquet that she has prepared with the intention of addressing his edict against the Jews. Well, Haman leaves the feast feeling proud of his high rank and the many privileges he has been given, but his pride takes a hit when Mordecai still refuses to show him respect. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Wednesday, February 1st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. If you're looking for a guest speaker at your congregation, the good people over at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation are happy to send someone to tell you all about their publishing and translating work. Call them or learn more at lhfmissions.org. Well, joining me this morning to guide the way as we traverse into Chapter 5 is my guest, the Reverend Roger Muller, pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Churubusco, Indiana. Good morning, Pastor Mullet. Welcome back to the show. It sounds like maybe you have a radio on. Uh, we'll have to make sure we got that turned down. Good morning. Uh, great to be with you guys. Glad to be back. Thank you, brother. Um, last time we talked was back in October with the book of Daniel, chapter 9. And now we're back in that same neck of the woods with King Ahasuerus and Queen Esther sometime later. Boy, uh, some things have changed since Daniel's day, but there's a lot that's still the same, wouldn't you say? It's one of those interesting things. Um, we're in the same region of the world, of course, and lots of parallel themes, even um, kind of in an unbelieving area. We have a few a uh, few faithful Jews here and there. There's lots of in and out between uh, or uh, before rather the king and making requests and things like that. Uh, lots of interesting parallels we can find there to be sure. Yeah, excellent. Well, yeah, and there's a lot we have to know about the inner workings of the court to kind of really pull all this together and understand what's going on. Uh, but as much as I'd like to dig in, I think it'd be prudent if we began our time in prayer. Uh, would you please lead us in that? Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, though you are not named in the book of Esther, still with eyes of faith, we behold your gracious work and will for the salvation of your people. Though we now live in a world which does not name you, nevertheless, still open our eyes to behold your continued presence and work for us today. Bless us by your word and spirit this hour, that our faith might be strengthened, our lives enriched, and our hope of salvation renewed through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We ended yesterday's episode with uh, the words of Queen Esther when she says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And then we see Mordecai went away and he did everything that Esther had ordered him to do. Uh, besides that, maybe catch us up just a little bit before we begin our text today. Lay the foundation so that people um, you know, have a good background for what we're about to talk about. Sure. Uh, today in Esther 5, uh, Esther, of course, is going to prepare a banquet, and we'll get a little hint that there will actually be a second banquet, though we don't get to that, of course, until chapter 6. Um, and that that is already building on a foundation that's been well laid in the book of Esther. There are banquets and feasts all over the place. The book, in fact, opens with one all the way back in chapter 1, two of them back to back. And that's an important theme throughout uh, in the different things that happen at banquets that we might dig into a little bit later on. 
And uh, through the course of the book so far, we've really been building the drama. It's, it's like those novels uh, that you, you read a little bit of this person's story, and then we jump to this person, we read some more there, so that we, we kind of have these layers of knowledge being built up for the reader, that we know a lot more details at this point in the story as the readers of Esther than any of the characters do themselves, which is kind of fun for us to have that bigger picture. We know that Haman has hatched this plot to kill off all the Jews in, in that region. Um, the king, of course, isn't quite aware of this yet. The king doesn't even know that Esther is Jewish. Uh, and so we kind of find the drama building. And in chapter four, we have uh, Esther, of course, uh, saying, let's, uh, you and me and all the Jews will have three days of prayer and fasting so that we can kind of determine what to do. And at the end of that three days, well, chapter five begins on the third day. Uh, and that's what kind of brings us all to a head here. What is Esther going to do uh, to do what she can do, God working through her, as we've already seen many times in the book, to, uh, to deliver the Jewish people, God's faithful people, from this uh, from this edict, eh, not quite an edict, I suppose, of Haman, this plot of Haman, who's got a lot of his own money in this game because for whatever reason he's decided he hates all of the Jews on account of Mordecai. Yeah, Haman is really acting with the permission and authority of the king. He's put uh, the modern equivalent we came up with, $300 million of his own money to make this happen. And also in chapter four, we really kind of see Esther uh, coming into her own. She becomes quite the quite the queen in just a few verses because she she goes from basically pleading with Mordecai that it's illegal for her to go to the king. She hasn't even been summoned in a month. She's really on the fence. And then it ends with her ordering this feast, ordering them to pray for her. And of course, her saying that she go she's going to go into the king, and if he accepts her, he accepts her. If he doesn't, well, she'll be willing to die. And as you said, that's where we find ourselves at chapter five. For the sake of our discussion, I'd like to go ahead and get on the table the first five verses. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. And so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Well, there we go. She's done what she said she was going to do. She's going to boldly enter the king's presence, and he might kill her. But that that suspense, that anticipation is broken, as we see. He still finds much favor in her. And then she has already prepared the feast, which she invites him to. Uh, take us through this, brother. 
so we see the third day. Um, she and Mordecai, and presumably because she has has kind of ordered this uh, of Mordecai to kind of make it happen at the end of chapter four. We presume now Esther, Mordecai, and all of the Jews have been praying and fasting for three days, and we could probably spend the entirety of our hour on just the idea of the third day, but uh, we'll let the hearer understand there. There's a lot of neat stuff in terms of redemption, in terms of the work of salvation that comes up with this theme of groups of three days. But anyway, she uh, puts on her royal robes and comes in. And as you mentioned a couple times, this, this is the big moment of truth when she comes in, because the law, whether it was fair or not, the law is you don't come in to see the king unless he tells you to come in. And the sign, of course, that he uh, is showing favor to Esther, that he will receive her and speak with her, is that he holds out the scepter. That's the sign that we've already seen earlier in Esther, that this is he has uh, shown favor to Esther. I think here what we can kind of ponder uh, as, we, as we think kind of uh, deeper into the text and start to think, well, what is there for us in here is uh, we have those parallels, of course, to Daniel. I think we can hear a parallel in here to uh, King Herod, uh, where he promises up to half the kingdom in, in the New Testament. Um, but, but reading even a little bit deeper to this idea of coming before the king. Um, now, uh, Ahasuerus or, or uh, Xerxes, I suppose, is the easier way, but uh, he's, he's not, uh, not a believer. He's not a Jewish king, of course. He's not faithful. Um, but to find there, I think, how does Esther, as a faithful person and trusting in her God, her king, who has brought her to this point, who has emboldened her to go before the king, risking her own life for the sake of God's people. How does she come in? She's prayed, she's fasted, and now she puts on her royal robes. She remembers who she is. She is the queen. She is the queen. And I think there's a lot for us, uh, whether you want to unpack this now or later, uh, for us as we approach our king, um, both here in time, if we might be called as the apostles in Acts, for example, to appear before the authorities in our lands, or when we approach our King Jesus in prayer and in the divine service and so on, how do we approach? We go humbly, of course, with prayer and fasting, but also boldly. We put on our royal robes, which is to say we remember who we are as children of God. We can go confidently, as Hebrews tells us in uh, chapter 10, chapter 4, for example, that we can go confidently. And I think that's part of what Esther's doing here. She can go confidently to make this request that, that the king will grant to her um, because she is the queen, but also because her faith has been emboldened by her God, her true king. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to pull out of what you said. <clears throat> the first would be the three days. So you said we could spend a whole hour talking about that. Um, sometimes I slip into a little bit of Freud. Sometimes three days is just three days. Uh, the three days is significant because, of course, she's asked them to per, uh, fast for three days. We assume that that includes uh, prayer and petitioning God, even though, of course, it's not explicitly mentioned, which Esther is, the book of Esther is famous for. But uh, over these three days, uh, probably... Um, you know, she she is 
it probably lasts from the first. Uh, let's see. Here. I'm trying to think of the the Hebrew keeping of time as they would have described it uh, from the from like the afternoon until the third day, so like 45 hours or so. And and so I've, I've been asked this before. Well, is the three days significant? When I went over this with Bible study, and I think sometimes we have to make a distinction between that which is specifically pointing forward to say Christ's resurrection on the third day. And that which we just bring to our mind because we know about Christ's resurrection on the third day. So my, my question I'm asking you is, do you believe that we are to intentionally connect this to Christ's resurrection or Christ's uh, time in the tomb? Or is this just something because we have uh, the wonderful uh, message of Christ in our hearts that we can't help but think about it? You, you understand what I'm saying, the distinction. Yeah, yeah, I do. And I, and I, that is an important distinction to remember. Another common example that we might use to kind of help think through that distinction is the presence or the appearance of water in the Old Testament. Is every single drop of water in the Old Testament meant to foreshadow holy baptism? Uh, and I think, I think we have to, of course, be careful because we can read far too much into far too many texts and start to get sidetracked. And I think probably we can take that gentler approach here as well, um, that this prayer and fasting for three days is not necessarily, or, or certainly not explicitly, a foreshadowing of Jesus' death and resurrection in that three-day span. Uh, certainly not the way that uh, Jonah's three-day belly of the fish right. uh, shows us so explicitly. Um, but, and yet, I think that that latter portion of what you said is exactly the way that it is. We can make that connection. It can call those things to mind uh, precisely because we read the scriptures with the Holy Spirit. Uh, right. We read with eyes of faith and can start to make those connections. There isn't anything, I don't think, explicitly death and resurrection here, but to consider perhaps how do the themes of fasting and repentance and, uh, and prayer fit into what we know about the three days of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And those, I think, are fine places to kind of read in the bigger picture of the scriptures and start to make those connections, even if the text doesn't go so far as to explicitly foreshadow. Oh, absolutely. Our church fathers certainly allegorized a lot of things and sometimes maybe taking a step or two too far. But it's it's about using the text to, of course, um, connect ourselves to the message of Christ. And the Old Testament ultimately is pointing forward to Christ. For instance, I did like your application of the idea of putting on royal robes and understanding both our place before the king, I, I suppose in, um, I don't want to say positive and negative senses, but in realistic and uh, uh, spiritual senses. So realistically, you know, we have uh, that danger before going before the king uh, as sinners. And then, of course, we have the reminder or the reality, the spiritual reality, that we are sons and daughters of the king, and therefore we do have free access to it. And she wins favor in his sight, and he held out Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then it says she touched the tip. Uh, the, the, there are translations, the Septuagint, for instance, that will say uh, kiss the scepter, which might be a little bit more accurate. Uh, but I will, I will, the other thing I wanted to say was that the king says to her, what is it, Queen Esther, what is it, your request? And then he says famously, it shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. 
I wonder, and this is a little more jovial, but I wonder, has any king ever said that and anyone said, sure, I'll take half your kingdom? I just, that just seems like such a cliche. Certainly she knew better than to actually ask for up to half his kingdom. Yeah, and I think, I think probably this is understood, even if it, it doesn't quite come across that way simply in print, so to speak. Uh, this is probably symbolic language or, or just a, a figure of speech. Um, and I, I think it's probably the same way when, when Herod uses this phrase uh, in the Gospels. Um, but it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, he comes right out with, what is it? Why? Well, because he hasn't summoned her. Right. He knows she must need something. I didn't call for her. You know, I'm the one who makes the requests around here. And yet she comes in as his queen with that boldness. And I think there's a lot of that that probably went a long way to having him extend that scepter of favor toward her, um, simply remembering this is the queen. She is coming boldly, confidently into the throne room. Um, and, and in that, whether by God's grace, uh, which of course we recognize all of the ways in this book, um, or simply by recognizing Esther is, is the queen and she is coming confidently, um, I, I will grant her this request, even though I didn't specifically call for her. And there is other boldness here, too, that people might not see at first reading. Uh, Let the king, she says, and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared. She's already prepared the feast. She's she's made it ready for them, which adds some urgency to the king's response. He can't. She's not saying, I'd like to make you a feast one day and he can put it off. She says, the food's ready. The wine's on the table. I want you and Haman to come now, and that's my request. And of course, he responds favorably, but if he would have said, no, get lost, I'm busy, then she would have had all that food and all that wine for nothing. So she really steps out in faith and boldness, but but yeah, she's, she's already made the feast. It really is pretty remarkable, uh, and I think it goes back, in some part at least, to this unspoken thing that happens sometime toward the end of chapter 4, uh, where we see the shift from kind of Esther unsure of herself and Esther uh, asking a lot of Mordecai and, and to kind of taking charge a little bit as queen and kind of stepping into that role. And I think, I think the unspoken thing is God enlivens her faith or strengthens her faith or, or gives her boldness or however you want to talk about it. Um, but she now, uh, through God uh, visiting her, speaking with her, simply em emboldening her, uh, is is preparing everything. The plans are set in motion, and I think that urgency too, kind of from the human perspective, um, which we'll pick up on at the feast itself a few verses later. Um, I think from the human perspective, it's one of those uh, things where you've resolved to do something, and now you need to hurry up and do it before you lose your nerve, so to speak. Um, at least from the human perspective, uh, reading the sure. whole book of Esther, we can see the plan set in motion and so on. Um, but I think there's a little bit of that here as well. Well, in the toward the end of this uh, chapter, I actually feel like, and I could be wrong, I'm reading this into the text, and we'll talk about it when we get there, but I feel like she might have withdrawn. I think maybe, you know, some commentators say she throws this first feast to soften him up for the second feast. But I also suspect it's just as possible that she lost her nerve and she's like, okay, uh, let's do it tomorrow. But we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, anything else about this particular section before I read 
verses six through eight, just till the end of this section? I don't think so. I mentioned very briefly um, the the idea of feasting and banqueting in the book of Esther, uh, kind of at large, so to speak. Uh, and it sets against the background of an Old Testament where feasting and banqueting is a is an important theme. And when we kind of touch on all these different places where people eat and who they're eating with, and then Jesus, of course, picks this up in the New Testament as well. Lots of important teachings, significant things that Jesus says happen around the supper table. Uh, so maybe to just keep those things in mind. And, and as we did with the three days and the royal robes, to start allowing your mind um, to wander a little bit through the scriptures and pull in what you know happens at feasting and what you know happens at banquets and, and what sorts of things are going to take place here. Exactly. We end this section, we end verse 5 with, uh, So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And we pick it up with verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. I think this is fascinating because here's the second time he's asked for her wish. So when he asked her at the beginning, what's your wish, and she says, come to the feast, that's not the wish. And now at the feast, or rather after the feast, he says, okay, second time, what is your wish? I feel like, and you tell me if you disagree, but I feel like she lost her nerve. I feel like she's like, uh, okay, let's have another feast tomorrow. She's putting him off. Maybe it's strategic or maybe she's lost her nerve. I, I guess it could be taken either way, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts. I do kind of read it the way that you do, um, that, you know, she, and, and in verse seven into verse eight, you can even you can almost hear it. And I, I mean, I love the way that you read it with that great big pause. My wish and my request is, and then right in that moment when she could have said all of the things that we know she's about to say uh, in chapter six and seven, um, and she just doesn't. If I have found favor, then let's, let's have another feast and let me think about it for another day. It's, we do this to ourselves all the time, of course. Um, lose our nerve about things and then uh, torture ourselves with an extra day of stewing about it. But, uh, but I really think that is what's happening here. I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with the idea that, that drawing out the time of feasting um, is helpful in the grand scheme of things, that it's maybe better to, to you know, butter the king up, so to speak. Um, but I, I really don't read this and find that as Esther's primary intention here. I think, I think she kind of in that moment, um, they've had the feast, they've kind of gone through um, the, the liturgy of the feasting, and now we're after the feast, so we can get back to the conversation. Um, and she's kind of at this moment of truth to make the request, it shall be fulfilled. She has that promise again, it shall be given, it shall be fulfilled. And uh, and she can't quite do it. I think in that moment she realizes just exactly what she's up against because knowing all of the context that we know with the plot to eradicate the Jews from this region, uh, we know that Haman knows Mordecai is a Jew, but we don't know yet. We as the reader do, 
uh, but we, uh, Haman and the king don't yet know that Esther is Jewish and so on. I think she kind of realizes as soon as I start talking about this, as soon as I bring all of this to light, somebody's going to die. Yeah. And she might not be super confident yet one way or the other, whether it will be her or Mordecai or Haman or all of the Jews or, or what exactly is going to happen. Uh, so this could be, um, could be a little bit of nerves here, I think. Uh, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll go and pray on that one more night and, and ask God to give me the right words. Uh, and, and, you know, at the same time, remind us and ourselves. I mean, I think we can see ourselves as, as God's faithful in Esther here when we're not quite sure how God would have us go about something. Let's, let's just take an extra day. Sleeping on it, I think, is a real thing. Uh, I think that's a real, like, actual sound piece of advice. Uh, sleep on it, mm -hmm. spend a little extra time in prayer, and, and see what God would have you do. Well, first of all, my, my thought is that we need to add the Liturgy of Feasting to the next service book. I think that would be a great addition. <laughs> uh, but I, w I will say this, you know, with the, with the, um, the providence that we see throughout Esther, and it really is a story about providence. As I've said before on other episodes, what we might call coincidence, or people might say fate um, or serendipity, is really God working. It's providence. So the time is not right. So it can be both. It can be Esther's nerves get to her. She delays the request, but this delay is important. God is working through this to make the time right when it comes. Uh, and really, because we know, well, we will know in just a minute, what happens uh, after this and into into chapter six, which is probably the best chapter in the whole book, I'm afraid you have to tune into uh, tomorrow to hear it. But what, what happens next wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for this delay. So all of this is being used by God to work out things according to his will. And, and that I do believe is the overarching message that, you know, that God is at work, even when we don't see him coming down in pillars of cloud or fire, when we don't hear him speaking to us from the heavens or shaking the thresholds, God is still there and he's still working for the good of his people. Absolutely. I think that's an important reminder for all of us as God's faithful is, you know, we, we are faithful, but we are still most definitely sinful and we do come up short and we aren't quite sure how things ought to go. And so that's going to bring us to do things not maybe in the best of ways. And yet through the entire book of Esther and here again, right at the end of this little section, we see God working through Esther getting nervous. We see God working through maybe she got cold feet here and needed an extra day to kind of steal her nerves again, if you will. I think that's one of the most important things about the book of Esther, really. I kind of, I kind of love that God is never named. Mm -hmm. I kind of love the way the drama unfolds without ever spelling it right out because it encourages us to, with eyes of faith, with the aid of the Spirit, as we read the scriptures, to go and find where he's working. And I think as, you know, maybe using Esther as kind of a, a kind of a template for, for watching the drama of our world, if you will, kind of unfold around us, that we can find God at work in these simple things, in these human interactions, in, you know, a world full of groups of people that don't care for each other, and kings and queens that fight, uh, not only amongst themselves, but between them and their people. And yet, 
in Esther, we can see God working. We don't need his name to be given to us and all of it pointed out to us. We as his faithful, we know what God is like. We know how he works. We know what he looks like when he's working behind the scenes. And we can find him in Esther. And so we can find him in our lives today as well. I think you're precisely correct because, you know, it's easy even for unbelievers to say, well, you know, if, if I would believe if God were here or if God made a sign or if God did this or showed himself, but if you look in faith, you see God's work all around you, even in ways that are not explicit. And that's something that we can take home. In fact, that's a thought that we should think about as we take just a few moments for a break. Folks, don't go anywhere when we come back. Pastor Mullet and I will dive right back into chapter five. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Roger Mullet, pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Cherubusco, Indiana. Uh, folks at home, or in your car, or out in your garden, wherever you listen to Thy Strong Word, remember, you can send me your comments or questions to pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can send me a message through Facebook. I love hearing from you. And the best way to support the show is to invite others to tune in and to listen for themselves. Thy Strong Word can be heard live, online, or over the air, on demand at kfuo.org forward slash Thy Strong Word, or through your favorite podcasting app. And don't forget, KFU has its own app too. Check it out in your favorite app store. Well, Pastor Mullet, before the break, you know, we had just sort of come to the conclusion that here we have Queen Esther. Here's her chance to shoot her shot to try to get the king to do what she needs. But for whatever reason, it pleased God to either make her a little nervous so she delays or give her the wisdom to delay. But either way, we have a delay. And so she invites them back to a feast that she'll prepare for tomorrow. Hey, and you can never have too much feasting, especially if you're a king. Uh, so what else about this might we need to know before we read the rest of our chapter for today? Well, at this point, um, with the promise of a feast coming. And again, I, I mean, I love the way you phrased that of whether God made her a little nervous or, uh, or whatever the case, uh, that God uses now this delay to work an even greater plan uh, than, than would have happened. You mentioned this a little while ago before the break, um, that it wouldn't have happened this way if not for the delay. But anyway, the promise now of the feast that not only uh, 
the king will be looking forward to. But now as we move into the second half of the chapter, especially Haman, that uh, is going to kind of add to just one more thing in this laundry list of good things going for Haman. Um, but in terms of feasting specifically, um, these are, I mean, these are grand affairs and something very much to look forward to, particularly when we're talking about royalty and feasting. And so this is something that Esther hosting another one is going to be just as grand as the first and something that Haman as not specifically a member of the royalty himself will very much look forward to. Well, Haman is such a character. I mean, we already have this guy who has plenty of reasons to have pride in his accomplishments and work. He's he's the prime minister, essentially, of Persia. He's second in command to the king. He has the king's signet. He can make orders in the name of the king. He's extremely wealthy, enough to give 300000 or $300 million worth of gold to help eradicate the Jews. And yet, there's the problem. He has all of this power and this wealth, and there's this one guy who doesn't like him, as if he's the only one. And he just can't get over it. He wants to destroy all the people because of this one guy. But that sets the stage as we see what happens next. And I'm not going to read all of the verses. I'm going to stop at verse 12, before, uh, at the end of verse 12. But we're going to get Haman's attitude as he heads home to see his family. Starting with verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. And when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and he brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one come but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Oh, goodness. I wonder how many times his wife Zeresh has heard this. Come and let me tell you about how great I am and all the sons. She's like, yeah, I know about the sons. I was there. Oh, listen to all my promotions. You know, his friends and Zeresh are just sitting around the table going, oh, this guy, this again. And, and we know that when it says glad of heart, uh, that's code for this guy's drunk. He goes home drunk. He's telling him all the stories. Ah, this guy must have been insufferable. I'm just that's that's a little editorial commentary there, but come on, Heyman. But it really sets him up. It sets him up for a big fall. It does. Uh, and of course, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I think six and and seven are really the. I mean, this is kind of the the climax of the book, right? If I remember correctly, the the place where the chapter is divided between six and seven comes in kind of a funny place. But anyway, uh, that's for, for the rest of the week, I suppose. Um, here, <laughs> Haman, uh, we really are. It's, it's written, uh, this book is written very much in the style of, of, a, of a drama um, that we're just building and building and building. You know, what else can we pile on to make the, the twist in six and seven as dramatic as possible. Um, so he kind of builds for himself uh, a little bit of a pity party, I think you might call it. Um, 
He's joyful and glad of heart. He's been in the company of the king and the queen, presumably just the three of them. At least that's what's recorded for us, presumably the servants in and out attending to the feast, but certainly just the three of them in the immediate company. And this is a high honor for Haman. Uh, but that's all brought to nothing, and we'll pick that up again in verse 13 when we get back yeah, to let's, it. Well, let's just um, add 13 real quick, because he says, okay. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. That actually ends his whole little speech here. Uh, what? Man, this guy's ego is so fragile. It is. It's, isn't that something? He's, he's got, and then he rehearses this long list of things to his wife, and he's even brought his friends over so that they can listen and no doubt nod along and add their, their words of affirmation to him that, oh yeah, you, you are rich and you do have so many sons and all the promotions that you've had and how great you are in the land and all these things. Um, all, all these things just kind of added on and on to make to make Haman feel better about himself. But what's that? It's all undone by one guy who won't stand up and bow when Haman walks by. And if that isn't, whether we're prepared to admit it to ourselves or not, if that's not a little snapshot of the way our sinful flesh works, we have all of these wonderful things so many good things, more than we could count, certainly more than we deserve. But what do we grab on to more often than not in our sinfulness? We grab on to the one guy who ruins yeah. everything. I know that I, I have to do battle against this particular temptation, particularly as a pastor, that if I've had a good sermon and there's lots of positive feedback and Bible study that day was great, and you say, boy, what a great Sunday at church that was. And there's one guy who says he didn't care for the sermon or one guy who looks at you funny or whatever it is. That's what we grab on to. Um, and I think that's just part of part of living in a fallen world that we tend to gravitate toward those one that one thing. Um, but we kind of see that with Haman as well. He's got all these wonderful things, but all of that is nothing because of Mordecai, this one guy who won't honor him when he walks by. Well, I want to I want to piggyback on what you said about this being our sin, because ultimately, whether we, as you said, like to admit it or not, we're more Haman than we are, say, Mordecai. Uh, and, and we can find ourselves falling into this trap easily. And you said, you know, well, I had this great day at church and there's just one person with a concern or a complaint, maybe a complaint that I don't think is founded. And it just bugs you. It kind of ruins your joy of what a, a wonderful, rewarding day. But then I couldn't help but think, of Zeresh, and then even more so, my own wife. How many times have I come home and been like, uh, just recounting her all of my deeds, right? <laughs> I had this great thing, and this great thing happened, and I saw God working here, and it just all was making sense, but then there's so-and-so, and I can't believe so-and-so, you know? And we, of course, we're sinning when we do that, but, but that is a temptation for all of us. It can happen at your job, too. You know, you come home, and you say, I had a great day at work, except... Sheila in accounting was blah, 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 blah. Uh, apologies to all Sheila's in accounting out there. But, you know, th that's the thing. We can all find our just fixated and focused on either someone who doesn't like us. Maybe they have good reasons or bad. But, you know, we have to we have to obviously humble ourselves. Haman is not good at humbling. Uh, that's for sure. He's not good at grounding either because he's trying to get all these people to. It makes you wonder even how close of friends are these? Are these friends that are friends with him because he's this wealthy, powerful guy? 
you know, if they're there just giving him accolades, then they're not true friends. And his wife, does she even really respect him? And, and of course, it takes a couple more chapters and we find out, yeah, maybe she's not as loyal as we would think either. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh... we... I was going to say, why don't we let the other shoe drop and we'll go ahead and finish out the, uh, the, the chapter here. And it's actually, as I look at it, only, only one more verse, just a long verse. Here we go. Then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Let gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Well, this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Wow. I, I, there's, a, there's a couple things I want to point out, but I, I, want to, I, want, I want to hear what you have to say first, and we'll see if we're on the same page. But there, there's a couple things that stand out to me, but go ahead. Well, um, historically, culturally, whatever word you want to use, um, gallows is probably not what's actually going on here. Uh, that's not a super important detail uh, until we kind of read between the lines and start to make those big uh, connections across the testaments, so to speak. I think there is perhaps a little bit of foreshadowing here, um, but uh, this is more likely just a big pointy stick on which someone would be placed and then pulled down upon uh, without getting too graphic here. The point of this is uh, that execution tends to take a little longer when you do it this way. And it's very public and very humiliating for the person being, uh, being executed. And so to take all of that along with just do this and have this happen to Mordecai, I think there's an element of shame being put upon Mordecai because Haman feels that he's been disrespected. He feels a little bit ashamed that his station is not being recognized by everyone in that kingdom, perhaps. And and I think from the perspective of his wife and his friends, simply like, look, you have all these wonderful things. You're rich. You have a big family. You have a high station. The king has honored you. You're advanced above all the officials and the servants, you call them the prime minister, right? That's basically what's going on here. If your one problem is Mordecai, just get rid of Mordecai, and then everybody's happy again. I mean, to be fair, from a completely, completely human standpoint, I mean, they're not wrong. It's like, listen, what, you got one guy bothering you? Aren't you in charge of this joint? Just kill him. <laughs> and, but, but even in his, even in the way they describe it, though, it's, it's all about his pride. As you pointed out rightfully, Gallows, really, um, it is interesting. And this is another one of those like three days things because Gallows is the Hebrew word here is, is tree, right? Hang him on a tree. And we certainly see that in light of our, our Savior's um, sacrifice for us. But in this case, it's this giant spike, this pole, this tree, this Gallows, whatever, 50 cubits high. It's like 75, 80 feet high. And we don't really find this out I guess until later, but this is erected outside of Haman's house. So not only do I want you to impale him on a spike that's 75, 80 feet high so everybody can see, I want him to be able to look down on my house and everything that I have as he is executed. Uh, that's just insane. And, and, and you have that insanity there, but also um, the phrase tell the king 
tell the king to have a Mordecai hanged upon it. And, and that's how they're talking in their house when they're all a little tipsy. But as we know, you don't tell the king anything. You don't tell him to do anything. And yet this chapter ends with him having the gallows made before he's even discussed it with the king, which is delicious irony later. But right now, and right now, so far as we are in the story, um, it just it's so presumptuous. It tells us even more about Haman. It does. Yeah, there's a boldness here. And I think perhaps the feasting and the wine are contributing to some of the boldness, as we've kind of hinted at. Um, but he also, I mean, we've seen over and over again, Haman's pride and ego are very much uh, running the show here. Uh, he is very proud. He's very much, um, I mean, full of himself, I don't think is, is going too far here. And if there's a way, as you said, it's a human solution, but it, it, I mean, it would solve the problem. It, it, it would it would take care of it. Um, so he, you know, whether it's his pride or perhaps the feasting and the wine or probably a combination of those making him think, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. We'll just put this in the backyard here um, to take care of the problem. Uh, his station is restored. Uh, his pride is left uh, unaffected. His ego can be puffed back up to where it once was uh, until he ran into Mordecai. And, uh, and Haman gets to go back to normal, to be in power and all these things. And this, I mean, going and telling the king, I mean, that, <laughs> that, that tells you, I think, where Haman's allegiances lie, that he thinks that this is a good idea. He's not maybe so much concerned about the king as he is with, uh, with whoever it is who will give him power, which is simply to say his loyalty may or may not be to the king himself so much as it is to the power that the throne has to to give to him to use. Well, absolutely. I, you know, he says, you know, she, this is his wife, of course, telling her to go tell the king. And that's in response to his arrogance. You know, if, if you're this great guy, just go tell the king to have him hanged upon it. And a couple of things that stand out to me, first of all, very short sighted, very myopic, because as you pointed out, this solves the problem in a human human sense. As I said, too, you know, hey, just take care of it. You don't like this one guy? Get rid of the one guy. But there's always one more guy. There's always one more that's not going to like you. And if you're in public service, uh, as we might think of it today, if you're a politician or anybody that's in the public scene, you know there's always going to be people that don't like you. And so there's a part of a lack of maturity here for, for Heyman. He doesn't – he's been – given all this power, but he doesn't have the maturity to understand that you can't force people to honor you. Now, I literally am just coming up with this on the fly. It might not hold any water at all, but I wonder if his wife and all of his friends are making a joke. I wonder if they're poking fun at Haman. And, and the reason I say this, and I have to kind of give away a little bit of the ending, at the end, it doesn't go well, and, and basically his wife then says, um, well, you know, you're, you're not going to succeed if this guy, uh, you know, he's going to rise before you and you're not going to succeed. If she knows this now, then maybe they're kind of poking fun. So maybe, so then we read, it says, then his wife's rash and all of his friends said to him, okay, Mr. I own everything. I'm rich. I got sons. I'm in power. Then why don't you build a, a completely ridiculous giant spike, go tell the King to have Mordecai hanged upon it and then go to your little feast. Except Haman doesn't get the joke, and he goes, yeah, let's build those gallows. 
I don't know. I, I don't know if there's any commentary out there to that to that huh. edge, but I I wouldn't put it past the author to frame. Obviously, these are real events; they're happening. But the author is framing them in a certain way to deliver a message, and I wouldn't be surprised if they weren't just joking at him. Yeah, I don't mind that. I don't mind that at all. It does kind of add an extra layer of, uh, uh, I mean, almost like tragic humor from the perspective of the reader that we can kind of see. I mean, this is just how far Heyman is willing to go. And they weren't even serious. It's, I mean, it is kind of an outlandish suggestion. 50 cubits high is a little ridiculous. Um, and yet Heyman's like, yeah, you know what? Absolutely. Um, which I think comes back to again Heyman's ego and like if he's prepared to make this outlandish gallows and have all of this public shame and humiliation heaped upon Mordecai even as Mordecai is executed um, the kind of slight that Haman feels Mordecai has given him by not bowing down every time he walks by is is pretty remarkable yeah serious or not you have one guy doesn't bow down or doesn't isn't afraid of you, and so your punishment on him initially, as we know, was to not only kill him on this particular date, but to kill everyone who's genetically or ethnically related to him. And that's obviously a complete, a ridiculous response. The you know in for instance, you always have this concept where your use of force has to match the the resistance. You can't use more force than the resistance requires. So the resistance here is for maybe if he really had any leg to stand on to scold this guy, to remove him from his position for not honoring him or whatever he felt was appropriate. But his his use of force way exceeds the resistance. You know, you're going to have a complete genocide because one guy doesn't bow down to you. Now we could connect this to they call him an Agagite and these guys are historically enemies of the Jews, but he doesn't even know that uh, that uh, Mordecai was a Jew at the beginning when he got so mad. So that doesn't hold water. This is just about this guy, Haman, and his arrogance. And now he's kind of even forgotten about the fact that he's going to be killed anyway. He's going to move up Mordecai's punishment earlier, hang him on a pole outside of his own house. Which, by the way, couldn't have been pleasant to have, you know, some guy hanging on a big spike outside your house. Uh, who would want that? Well, somebody like Haman would want that. <laughs> I think we also, not only are we sometimes Haman's, we have to be very careful. I mean, hopefully not making, uh, you know, giant gallows for people, but we, we sometimes fall into the same temptations and sins that he has, but we also know Haman's. Sometimes we're the ones who are targets of these people who we might call sociopathic today. They just, they have no understanding of empathy for other people, and yet we have to encounter them and deal with them, and once they've targeted you, you are a target. You know, we could really spend a no whole another episode on, you know, how to deal in a Christian view with with sociopaths. And the truth is, you really can't. And so, you know, Mordecai's in a tough position too. But we just see the the folly, I guess, of 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 pride. And this is the definition of pride goeth before the fall. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about. Esther, as, as, as it's kind of written as a drama, as a narrative, and really about the scriptures as a whole, is, is how human it is. And how we can, depending on what we're going through, what exactly our situation or our circumstances might be, we could come back in another week and read 
Esther 5 all over again and find ourselves in someone else's shoes because a situation has changed or a relationship has been broken or formed um, that brings our circumstances in a different place, which is simply to say, when, <laughs> this is what makes the incarnation so significant, right? That, that our lives as humans in flesh and blood are so significant to God that he brought that upon himself, that he, he took on a body and a soul for himself. Um, and that then in the scriptures, we can see God working in those things, that we can find ourselves in all these different parts of the story. And yet using Esther as kind of the crown jewel of this concept, right? That even though he's not named, even though he doesn't come right out and show himself in this drama of Esther, we know that he's there working through these sinful people, rearranging things according to his plan and his purpose, and ultimately working everything out for the good of his people. To, to bolster what you said, you know, we do not have a high priest that's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, right? I read that somewhere in a good book. And <laughs> our, our Lord and Savior knows what it's like to be human. Now, God, knowing all things, of course, knew that beforehand, but in his incarnation, we can really connect and be and rest assured there's no there can be no doubt in our minds that as we go through our life and, and real life things are happening like in Esther. I mean, yeah, this seems kind of like King's Courts and all this other stuff. It seems so far removed from us. But yeah, I like what you said. You know, the things that we're going through, when you get back into the scriptures, who knows if you will identify with a Haman or you identify with a Mordecai or you'll identify with an Esther. Or maybe you're a boss and you're going to identify with the king of Hashuaris. Um, But the point is, you know, you can't just check off these books. Someone come to me and they said, hey, you know, I'd really like to be in the Bible more. How can I be in the Bible? And I said, well, I would avoid those Bible reading lists. Um, and not because, I mean, if that's your style, go for it. But if you're reading a book just to check off the list, then you're really not going to get anything out of it. But when you read the book and you're and you're thinking about your own situation and, and what God is saying to you through the word, and yeah, I, I just love that you pointed that out. It makes so much sense. You can reread the same story several times and may even know it inside and out. And yet the Lord through the Holy Spirit uses that to just bring a new, uh, um, I won't say solution, a new application to your life from Scripture. I think that's one of the amazing things about the way that, uh, I mean, the way obviously that God has given us the scriptures, but the way that Esther works itself out, or the way that drama kind of resolves itself in the coming chapters, not to give too much away or steal anybody's thunder, but regardless of whether you find yourself today as a Haman, and you kind of do that introspection and see, you know, I, I do treat some people this way, and I am kind of wrestling against this arrogance, and I am kind of failing to see my blessings or getting held up on grudges or whatever else. I mean, we know how Haman's story ends uh, rather abruptly and violently. And we can kind of remember, you know, that is what, what that sort of sinfulness deserves. And yet there is another who hung on a tree to deliver us from that. Or maybe we're Mordecai today and we find ourselves run down or even oppressed and afflicted by those that we work with or those who are surrounded by and it might feel like we're about to be hung on a tree ourselves, whether justly or unjustly. Right. And yet we can remember our lives are spared because there is another who hung on the tree in our place 
to deliver us from all of these earthly sorrows that St. Paul reminds us will give way to an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. Well, that's a great place to end it on. You can't beat that, ending it on Jesus. I tell you what, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Roger Mullet, pastor of Faith Evangelical Lutheran Church in Cherubusco, Indiana. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it very much. And dear saints, this Friday is the first Friday of the month, so be sure to tune in for a special free text First Friday episode. I'll be joined by the Reverend Jim Dobb, and we'll explore funeral texts. Now, if you think that sounds a little bit somber, a little bit morbid, it's not at all. Come hear the purpose of funerals, how and why certain texts are chosen, and we'll even dive into three, one from the Old Testament, an epistle, and a gospel text. But before then, tune in tomorrow, Thursday, as we turn the page in Ruth chapter 6. We join Haman at the beginning of what will turn out to be for him a very, very bad day. Come along as we'll see Haman's pride lay the snare for his own downfall. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.